everyone. There's only so much time in the day. That's why we edited this Vermont Edition podcast for brevity. I know you'll thank us. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Mary Engish. Look ahead to Sunday on your calendar, and you might see that it says first day of summer. It's also Father's Day, note to self. Uh, though meteorolo- meteorological summer officially began June 1st, this weekend marks the start of astronomical summer. What's the difference, you might ask? Well, the short answer is meteorological seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter, those are based on annual annual temperature cycles. Astronomical ones are based on the position of the Earth in relation to the sun. All that to say, happy summer. And with that, happy gardening. This hour, we're going to dig into your gardening questions, conundrums, trials, triumphs. Did you grow a green thumb during lockdown? Or maybe you're like me and you got really into reading books and studying up on how to homestead and grow all your own fruits and vegetables and live literally off the land. Or perhaps you watched the VPR webinar a month or so ago and you've gotten your own no-dig garden going. Also, this is the first week of summer vacation for Vermont school-age kiddos, and my own 13-year-old announced yesterday that they're officially bored. So maybe you've got projects that you're planning with your kids or your grandkids or younger neighbors. And with summer temperatures and things hatching and creeping all over the place, you might also have questions about garden pests. And you've come to the right place, because whether you keep a small container garden on your back deck or you care for a large family garden, perhaps you've got a plot in a community garden. We want to hear from you. So get those questions ready. And in just a moment, gardening expert and host of All Things Gardening on Sunday mornings on VPR, Charlie Nardozzi, will jump in to help us out. First, though, some quick thoughts on recent reporting you may have heard concerning dry conditions in our region. Some data collected shows conditions are abnormally dry across nearly the entire state of Vermont and New Hampshire and into Maine. In fact, the Vermont Drought Monitor reports communities from Franklin to Wyndham counties are experiencing abnormally dry conditions. And the Vermont Drought Monitor also considers Orleans County, Essex County, Caledonia, Washington, Orange, and Windsor counties to be in a moderate drought. Well, what could that mean is that things like crop growth will be delayed, it could be elevated fire dangers, a decline in surface water levels, and brown lawns and wilted gardens. But larger still, with prolonged, unusually dry conditions, are impacts from moderate drought, like declines in honey production and lower grain and hay yields, low lake levels, stressed-out trees, landscape, and fish. We actually reached out to the Eye on the Sky meteorologist from the Fairbanks Museum in St. Johnsbury, Mark Breen, to ask about conditions in Vermont right now. And what Breen shared was actually pretty fascinating. We asked if we were expecting a dry summer this year, and and Brown said there are no indications of a drier-than-normal summer. And several long-range forecasts suggest there's actually a better-than-ever chance of greater-than-normal rainfall. And we asked how much rain is sufficient for Vermont vegetation, either annually or for just this summer. And Breen shared that as a general rule, vegetation requires about an inch of water per week. And that's close to the average rainfall that we are getting. So even though it might seem quite dry, and it is in uh, most of the state and into New Hampshire and to Maine, 
Breen shared that trends over a five-year period really aren't trends. It takes more like 30 years or more to be considered a trend toward drier weather in our region. And actually, it appears to be warmer and wetter than normal. And Charlie Nardozzi joins us now to help us answer some questions. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Mary. How are you? I am great. It's so nice to talk to you, and um, I hope you're ready to answer a whole bunch of questions from our listeners because they've got them for us. (laughs) It's what I do, Mary. (laughs) I got lots of answers. (laughs) So let me ask you first as we get some folks on the phone line, and um, we'll talk to them and have them ask their questions in a moment. Charlie, Mm -hmm. how is uh, the weather right now for gardening in Vermont? Well, it's been nice that we've had a couple days of rain. So that really helped a lot of gardens that were just put in, say, mid to end of May into June. Um, Those annual flowers, annual vegetables and herbs, things that were planted or transplanted or sown from seed, it helps a lot of those plants really get established because it's really important. As much as we try to be diligent about watering ourselves, there's nothing that's better than um, a a regular rainfall (laughs) to really help those plants along. So that's a good thing. And that's nice that that's happened and that can hopefully is going to continue throughout the summer. It sounds like it from Mark Breen that we will have a, some more rain coming um, because that will help those plants really mature and get the production that we're looking for. Yeah, I find that so fascinating. I mean, we're, we are experiencing dry conditions right now, but, you know, it's not really a trend or something that's going to be long lived, uh, according to Mark, uh, unless it's, you know, something that's 30 years of the same repeated pattern of temperature fluctuation. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, as long as we keep our own watering practices up, which this is a a good time to ask you that question, how often, let's say we've got a backyard plot or a no-dig garden, how often are we watering that? So if you're doing an an annual flower, vegetable, or herb garden where it has small plants with small root systems, uh, really you should be checking it almost daily, especially if we get a hot spell like we had maybe about a month ago uh, where the water is just evaporating really quickly. So you want to make sure that soil stays consistently moist. Then as things germinate or things get established uh, and they start growing, then you can start staggering it a little bit. Maybe every other day or every three days you could be watering. And at that point, you want to start watering deeper Uh, So watering longer in that one area uh, so that the water soaks down deeper and those roots will follow that water down. So then we, if we do get a real dry spell, say in July or August, you have roots that have deep root systems that can really tap into the water that's below the surface. And if we're collecting water from recent rainfalls, let's say in a rain barrel or a cistern, or in my case, the water from the dehumidifier in in the basement, um, can we, can we use that for watering our gardens? And how is that different from tap water from the garden hose? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. And that's probably the best water you can use uh, because it is rainwater. It's relatively clean water, uh, doesn't have any kind of additives to it. Um, and even if it's dehumidifier water, that's fine too. I've watered our house plants with our dehumidifier <laughs> water and they seem very happy about it. Uh, the nice thing about the, these kind of water sources is that they don't have anything that's treated in it. If you're on a city water system, they might be um, different kind of chemicals that are added to the water supply to make sure there's no bacteria and things that will be harmful that are growing. But uh, rainwater and water from things like dehumidifiers are pretty pure, pretty clear. So it's nice to set up a system where you can a water, use that, and then take that water in either through a gravity feed system or a pump feed system and get it out into the garden and water your plants. So I want to ask about some gardening trends that maybe really 
took root, see what I did there, during the past year of uh, the pandemic and folks being in lockdown. Have you noticed any gardening trends that may have cropped up during the pandemic? Oh, you're just full of those, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't even know I was doing it that time. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, There's lots of trends. You know, I've done some work for the National Gardening Survey this past couple of years. And as you've heard in lots of media, there has been an uptick in the amount of gardeners out there and the amount of gardening that's happening. The growth group seems to be more the younger generation, um, younger being anywhere from the 20s into the 30s, especially uh, families with kids. Because what's happened is, of course, people were at home, so they're looking, as you were mentioning earlier, for activities to do with your children. Um, And also, whenever we have a kind of a a disruption in our lives, whether it be a natural disaster or um, things like this uh, pandemic that have happened, people tend to want to garden and they specifically tend to want to grow their own food. It is just, I don't know if it's just kind of a genetic thing that we have that we want to have a little bit of control over something that seems to be out of control. So -hmm. let's grow some of our own food so that we can have that at least. So that's been a big uptick is that the number of people growing their own food gardens has really gone up. Um, Along with that, though, there has been this also this strong need for social type of gardening. And I think that is probably more a reaction to the pandemic where everyone was supposed to stay away from each other. Now that things have loosened up enough that we can gather together in groups, lots of people want to do community gardening, want to do gardening at churches and other kind of public places um, because they like the social aspects of gardening. So those are two kind of trends that we see that are happening out there. Charlie, you ready for the first question? I am. (laughs) Let's talk with Mark. Mark is calling in from Wheelock. Hey, Mark, what's your question for Charlie Nardozzi? Well, hey, Charlie. Um, I uh, I, uh, help uh, neighbors uh, uh, care for their lawns uh, in the Lindenville area. And uh, one thing that I've been noticing over the last few years is that uh, the lack of water and the accumulation of salt along the roadside has been uh, uh, killing off the grasses. And uh, no matter what we do, we can't get the grass to grow. And I was wondering if you knew of any grass varieties that could be planted there that are uh, drought tolerant and uh, salt tolerant. Uh, Sure, good question. Yeah, so uh, certainly the salt is an issue. Uh, Whenever that that happens, not just with grasses, but plants that are uh, planted close to the roadside, we've all kind of seen like the evergreens with the browning needles in the spring, and that's from salt spray coming off our roads. Uh, So the best thing to do uh, if you have a lawn area close to the road and you're having trouble growing grass is to really flush it out with water in the spring. Because what that will do is it will drive those salts deeper into the soil and get them out of that that topsoil layer where the grass roots are trying to grow. As far as the types of grass to grow, the fescue grasses tend to be tougher grasses. You know, a lot of the grasses that people aspire to growing are the Kentucky bluegrass type of things because they have that nice, soft, cushy, blue-green kind of coloring to them. They do really well in, in very fertile soils and in full sun. But if you have tougher soils, you might want to use either a creeping fescue, uh, which is more of a low-growing, fine-leafed grass, or a a turf-type tall fescue. Say that one fast three times. (laughs) Uh, Turf-type tall fescue is one that's been more modern grass, uh, uh, kind of a version of the fescue grasses. Um, And these are tougher grasses that grow not only in in harder soils to grow, but they can withstand a drought a little bit deeper, uh, better because they can uh, send their roots a little bit deeper. The other thing you can do, of course, to help your... uh, grasses grow is to mix other things in with the grasses like creeping clover or white clover. 
Uh, white clover has the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen, fix it into the soil so it feeds the grass, but it also has a deeper root system. And you'll notice if you have a lawn with clover in it, the rest of the lawn grasses may brown out during a drought, but the clover always stays green. So mixing some of these other types of, of plants into your lawn uh, might be a helpful thing. And then of course, adding compost as a top dressing in the fall every year will also be very helpful to build up that soil and water holding capacity of your lawn. Does that answer your question, Mark? Hopefully that does. Yeah, it does. Uh, it's uh, very helpful and insightful. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Okay, you're welcome, Mark. Thanks for calling. Yeah, Charlie, I also remember, too, I recall uh, an All Things Gardening from more in the springtime where you mentioned that daffodils also aren't affected as much by road salt. So maybe he can also <laughs> sprinkle a few daffodils in with those other uh, those other plants. Um, Charlie, yeah, you mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's lots of different kinds of plants that are salt tolerant. If you wanted to do a little more landscaping along yeah. the road versus just having a lawn, that's another option. Yeah, you were speaking a bit about nitrogen in the soil, too, and one of our listeners wrote in, and said, I have several raised beds that do really well. They're exposed in the winter and get a lot of snow on them, which, as I understand, means some decent nitrogen as well. They write, two of the main beds will now be covered in a greenhouse we built this spring. My question is, should I add extra nitrogen to these beds to replace what the snow provides? The beds are composed of all organic compost, soil, backwano, promix, and worm castings. Oh, and they write, some molasses in the beginning. (laughs) <laughs> that's great um i want to be in those beds <laughs> those Sounds are great like dinner. <laughs> it does um, and i would not worry about not having enough nitrogen with all the list of ingredients that you just described him putting into that bed um, the amount of nitrogen you're getting from the snow is not that uh, great so uh, really it's more um, all those other organic materials that you have in that soil the compost and the, the bat guano and even the molasses a little bit um, is going to help the plants grow so I wouldn't worry about adding anything extra beyond that okay um, another phone call for you Charlie this is Dave in Richmond he's got a question go ahead Dave hi Charlie uh, a big fan and uh, love the advice that you give out thank you very much I'm growing potatoes in cloth bags, and uh, I started with about six inches of dirt in the bottom. And then uh, when the potatoes got to be about a foot tall, I covered them up to about four inches of growth showing above the dirt. But I'm reaching the top of the cloth bag. Am am I doing the right thing? Uh, Yes, you're doing it actually perfectly correct. Uh, You just keep adding that soil in. And the soil you're adding, by the way, should be kind of a mix of potting soil and compost. You don't want to just add total garden soil, that might get a little too heavy uh, for a contained area like that cloth bag. But once those potatoes start sprouting over off the top, then make sure you keep it well watered. Um, That's probably the the most important thing as far as getting the best production is keeping the soil moist right through the growing season. And once it starts yellowing later in the summer, then then you have the fun. Uh, You can do this with kids or grandkids or the neighbor's kids. Uh, Have them come over, lift up the bag, turn it over, and then watch the whole thing just fall out on the lawn the soil and all the big potatoes. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) So um, we've got lots of uh, folks that are clamoring to speak with you about, uh, about their different gardening questions and conundrums. Um, Some things that we're, we're looking forward to chatting with you about um, are urban and no dig gardening. And then we'll talk some tomatoes coming up as well. Um, But first I wanted to just touch back a little bit on more of the, the pandemic trends that have been happening and, um, 
Do you know, do you have you noticed if there are lower supplies in terms of plants and seeds and different gardening things that are happening uh, due to the pandemic? We, we certainly heard about that maybe a year or so ago. Is that still occurring? Well, it was an issue earlier in the season, especially with seeds. Um, you would go onto the seed uh, websites and find out a lot of things were out of stock or backwatered. Um, but I think at this point, of course, most people have purchased most of the seeds that they're going to be purchasing for the year, which they should continue purchasing because they can continue planting. Um, but that's not usually what people do. Uh, and with plants, uh, I think the same thing kind of happened. A lot of that was due not so much to a lack of supply, but a, a lack of transportation. Uh, mm. I think you probably heard in the news about issues with getting things across the country, truckers and all these other ways of, that we normally would do that. There was a lot of uh, bottlenecks that would happen. Um, so there was some delays in getting plant and plant material. But I think at this point now that most garden centers and nurseries and, and places are kind of filled and, and stocked and ready to go. Maybe they don't have all the different varieties they normally would have, but they certainly have enough for you to get going in your garden. Yeah, I do remember hearing in the news that garden gnomes were like part of that <laughs> Suez Canal barge that was stuck and it was like full of garden gnomes and people were up in arms. They could not find uh, you know, those decorations for their garden. So hopefully that's yeah. been, that's hopefully that, that is not still affecting people. Um, also, in terms of gardening trends, you were mentioning earlier that a lot of younger people are taking to gardening. Um, have you noticed that um, younger folks are also maybe doing more organic gardening and staying away from different sprays and fertilizers and things? Yes, that's a general trend that's been going on for a number of years now. Folks who are just getting into gardening or our younger generation of gardeners um, are very much interested in organic gardening, ecological gardening, ways to garden that will be in tune with nature uh, because there is a, a deep sense and concern about climate change, deep sense and concern about our planet and the health of the planet. Uh, so that is something that continues. And uh, I'm just going to do a quick little segue into my book on no dig gardening. Uh, that's why I wrote that book last year. And uh, the idea with no dig gardening, of course, is that you're layering organic materials that you're finding around you in nature, leaves and grasses and, and compost and things of that nature into a, a raised bed garden. So you're creating a really fertile soil mix. So you don't have to worry so much about what the soil is underneath it because you're creating a great fertile soil mix on top where you can grow, grow more plants easier with less weeds and less work. So those kinds of things and those kinds of techniques are really what's drawing a lot of attention right now. Well, let's talk more about that no-dig gardening and urban gardening. Those are um, You've written the book on no-dig gardening, and, and BPR teamed up with you to have a seminar, I think it was back in April. Um, and maybe folks have uh, are starting to get some things growing in their no-dig garden bed and uh, call in and let us know how that's going. But, Charlie, how does one get started with, let's say, no gardening background and if they wanted to create this no-dig garden bed, what, what do we need to get off the ground? Well, you need a, usually a sunny spot would be the best. You could probably grow your garden if you're growing vegetables and uh, some annual flowers in a part shade location. But full sun gives you more opportunities to grow a wider variety of things. You want to locate that garden bed uh, close to uh, the house or your residence so that you're going by it every day. You're looking at it. You're taking care of it. And also ideally close to a water source so you don't have to drag hoses all over the place just to keep it uh, watered. 
And then at that point, you don't have to be digging or tilling or turning anything. You're just going to create a raised bed. And it could be a, a raised bed made out of a permanent material or semi-permanent, uh, something like cedar wood or, or spruce or hemlock or concrete blocks or stone, any of those materials would be good to raise the bed up about a foot or so and no wider than about three to four feet. Then you start adding your layers in right on top of the lawn or whatever material is on the soil uh, surface. Um, and it could be layers uh, of hay or straw or chopped leaves, fresh grass clippings from untreated lawns, uh, compost or topsoil you have. You just keep creating these layers until you get to the top. Then you cap it all with compost. And then you just let it sit and slowly kind of work its way down, you know, work its way into a decomposition state. Um, if you're doing that now and you want to plant immediately, you're probably going to want to have a pretty thick layer of compost on top. I would say at least six inches thick because all those organic materials are going to take a while to break down. Um, so this first year, if you're starting now, as we're talking here, middle of June, I would go with things like uh, leafy greens and beans, uh, some of the root crops that don't grow too deep, like radishes, for example. Um, those are the kinds of crops that would do probably the best in a, a first built no-dig garden that started late, like in June. Um, by the fall, of course, things have broken down. You probably can come in with a fall crop of kale and some of the other things that would be able to go down deeper into the soil. And then by next year, of course, you're, you're all set. So you just put another layer of compost on top, and then you can plant your tomatoes and your squashes and the deeper rooted kinds of vegetables. I have to say that uh, we did a, a small no-dig gardening on our side yard, and I'm completely shocked because, Charlie, you know me and my non-green thumb. Um, stuff is actually growing in it, so <laughs> we're looking forward <Wow>. to <laughs> A testimonial. I will take photos. <laughs> Just because there has to be proof. Um, let's talk with uh, with some callers here. Folks have questions for you, Charlie. Brian is in North Ferrisburg. Brian, what's your question for Charlie Nardozzi? Hi. Um, on my nine bark shrubs, I have a white fuzzy mold, not quite powdery mildew, uh, tends to kill the leaves and then eventually the whole limb of the shrub. You know what it is and what I can do. So it is a little early for powdery mildew, so it may not be that, but it's probably some other kinds of either a fungal a disease that's got in there. Uh, some of the shrubs, you'll see that happen. Daphne is another famous one for just having branches all of a sudden just kind of dying off, wilting and dying off. What I would suggest, uh, since nine bark is a very aggressive shrub, it means it grows pretty fast and sends up lots of branches and, and stems, that I would cut off the one, or if, especially if there's only a couple of them, cut off those down to either a main branch or right to the ground if it's coming out of the ground and removing it from the area. Add some compost around the shrub, so that'll help too a little bit and to keep it really healthy. And hopefully the nine bark will just outgrow that little bit of damage and we'll be fine. You're listening to Vermont Edition with Charlie Nardozzi. I'm Mary Angish. And uh, let's keeping, keep taking uh, questions from our phone callers here. Uh, Joe in Orwell, you've got a question for Charlie. Go ahead. Hey, Charlie. Um, thanks so much for taking my call. Uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the idea of uh, continuing to buy seeds and planting as the season goes on. I've heard a little bit about that um, over the years, um, but really want to learn more. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and maybe point us to resources, whether that's websites or books, um, where we might be able to learn uh, a good way to do that. Uh, yes, there's a couple different techniques you can use. Uh, one is called interplanting, where you're planting fast maturing uh, plant, uh, types of vegetables in among slower maturing vegetables. So a good example is your tomatoes. You, most people have them in the ground now. They're, most people's tomatoes are probably still pretty small, probably about a foot or so tall. 
And if you plant space them correctly, they're probably two to three feet apart in a bed. So you have all that space in between that's really just kind of sitting there. You could mulch it and that's a good thing to do, but why not throw in a bunch of salad greens, arugulas and lettuces and Swiss chard and beets. The last year we did that, we had some old salad green mix seed that I hadn't used for a number of years. I just sprinkled the whole thing with it. I had all kinds of stuff coming. I even had basil coming up in there. And what happens is that you can use those vegetables as your tomatoes grow. Eventually the tomatoes will get so big that they'll shade them out, but that's okay because you've used that space. So that's called interplanting. The other is one called succession cropping. So when one crop is done, instead of just uh, leaving it there so it just kind of yellows and dies on its own, uh, or pulling it out and leaving nothing there, then you plant something new. So you can start with cool season crops that, that we probably would have started a month or so ago, um, like the lettuces and the spinach and the radishes. When you're done with those around this time of year, as we're starting to get more consistently warm with our temperatures, you can put things like bush beans in. You can plant bush beans right through the end of July and still get a crop of those. When the bush beans are done, say end of August, early September, then you can put a fall crop of say kale in. So by planting in succession, in this one bed, you've gotten three different types of crops. So there's a couple of different techniques that are, are really available. My book on no-dig gardening talks about that, talks about a number of other interplanting techniques. And of course, on the internet, there's tons of resources that are out there. Some of our uh, statewide seed companies like High Mowing, for example, would have some of these resources and some of the other companies that are out there um, that would have good resources to help you kind of come up with a plan. Yeah. Also, Joe, if you can get to VPR.org and search for All Things Gardening, there are a couple of episodes of that um, broadcast that uh, Charlie Nardozzi speaks specifically about interplanting, about succession planting, just really good resources because Charlie breaks it down step by step on how you can do that. So you can find those at VPR.org. Let's go to Safo next in Montreal. Hello there. Hi. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I'm in Montreal anyway, and in the past I've been doing backyard gardening, and I'm still doing it, and I'll be using regular compost soil. But this year I mixed it up, I mulched it up with uh, my own compost, my lawn, cut grass there. But they're growing very well, more than they used to in the past. But so are also different kinds of uh, weeds springing up. Is there any way I can help out uh, get rid of those holes? Uh, so it's great you're using your, your grass uh, in there, but in, invariably, most lawns do have weeds mixed in with them, and you're going to get some of the weed seed, and that's probably so far what you're seeing in your lawn, your backyard uh, garden, is that using that compost still has the weed seeds in there. So the best thing for weeds in a bed, especially if you have like a raised bed, is, and especially if you have really rich soil, which it sounds like he does have, um, is to plant things a little bit closer together so that they'll get big and they'll shade out any weeds. And also, as those weeds start to germinate, this time of year is really critical for annual weeds. They're starting to germinate. They're starting to pop up. Go in there almost a couple times a week, maybe even three or four times a week, and then just scratch the surface of the soil, just enough to kill those weeds, but not the plants that you put in. If you do that now for a couple weeks or so, getting into July, then you will have exhausted the seeds that were on the soil surface. And don't t- dig the soil down very deeply because you don't want to bring up more weed seeds to the soil surface. And your plants should be able to be- get big enough to shade out any other weeds. And that way you'll spend most of the rest of the summer not having to weed. Okay. Uh, up next, Charlie, uh, Bob in Thetford has a question for you. Hey, Bob, go ahead. Yes, thanks for uh, taking my call. 
We live um, close to a lake, and uh, because of, I think, glacial conditions, we're on about 50 feet of sand, and it's been very difficult to grow a lawn. And also because of concern about nutrients washing into the lake, we don't want to put down lots of fertilizer or, or new soil. Is there something you could suggest that might serve as a meadow um, or uh, a tall grass that would not look too bad and cover up some of the anthills, which is about all we have right now? Uh, yeah, you could try some of the, the meadow mixes. There's uh, different companies that sell d uh, different meadow mixes for our region, uh, kind of a northeast meadow mix. And they, they would have all kinds of things in there, including things like oxide daisies, which are blooming a lot of places now. Uh, sometimes you can get some with clovers in them. Uh, I, I mentioned before, those are really effective. The state flower is the red clover. Uh, that's a nice one to mix in there. If you think about some of the abandoned pastures you see on, on soil that's kind of degraded and see what's growing there, what naturally has come in, those are the kind of plants you probably want to bring into your area. Um, it's the kind of thing that once you get these flowers and these grasses kind of in there uh, and growing, uh, then to manage them at that stage of succession, all you really need to do is to mow them down in the fall. Uh, mow them down after they're done uh, flowering and they've set seed, so they'll drop seed on the ground and they'll come back up again the next year. But I think that would probably be a, the best way to kind of approach this is start with a seed mix. If, you, if it's a real sandy soil, I would suggest maybe do try to bring in some topsoil or something that's going to allow that seed mix to really take hold. Um, but at that point, though, once it's taken hold, you really shouldn't have to worry too much about watering it and taking care of it. Uh, during dry conditions, what happens in those kinds of meadows is the plants are shorter, they're not as thick and lush, but they do survive. Uh, so that might be a nice option to try. Charlie, let's uh, pivot to a topic that um, we all know and love, um, pests and invasive species. Um, we were just uh, chatting a bit that, um, you know, some folks, um, we happen to name the chipmunks that are in our yard because <laughs> they're adorable, but they're also eating all our, our stuff in the garden. Um, so there's uh, some definite ways to take care of the pests and the invasive species. What, what are the ones that are the most problematic right now that you're seeing and, and, and hearing most about? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a long list <laughs> this time of year, because as the rains come and plants grow, then of course the insects, uh, they want to survive too. So they're going to take over um, and do some. So we'll focus mostly on insects at this point. And mm -hmm. if people have questions on specific uh, pests, uh, they can call in with that. Uh, so uh, first of all, with insects, I always tell people, you know, 99% of the insects out there are either benign or they're beneficial. So it's not like we have to get rid of insects. Uh, we do not want that to happen because we, they're a critical part of our ecosystem. It's only a small percentage that really cause problems on our plants. So if we can focus on those and focus on their life cycle and how they kind of evolve in our garden and learn more about them ourselves, then we'll be able to find kind of the weak link in their life cycle, you might say, the place where if you interject yourself there for a short period of time, you could really uh, cut back on that population of that insect. So a good example would be squash bugs. Right now, a lot of people have zucchinis and winter squash and pumpkins out in their gardens. And if you look on the bottom sides of the leaves, you will see these copper colored eggs that have been laid in clusters between the veins of the leaves. Those are squash bug eggs. Um, the squash bugs, by the way, are usually kind of brown or grayish color. They have kind of a shield on their back. They're kind of like stink bugs. They're all kind of in that mm. same family. And they're, they're scurrying around. 
So at this time of year, if you are diligent about going out there, and that's why I always talk about putting the garden close to where you live so you go by it, and just take five minutes a day or every other day and flip over some of those leaves looking for those eggs and you squish them or cut them out with a scissors, you're gonna slow down that whole population buildup so you won't be inundated come July, August by squash bugs. So it's that kind of interjection that you can really do in the garden, learning about the life cycle a little bit and jumping in there so you can kind of take care of it. Uh, some insects are early season insects like flea beetles, you know, those little black beetles that hop when they're disturbed, that's why they call them flea beetles. Uh, they will kind of make a mess of your eggplant seedlings or um, radishes and bok choy or things of that nature. Uh, what you can do with those is you can dust with a diatomaceous earth and that's a powdery substance that they don't like the powderiness and that will help your transplants survive past that critical period because once we get another week or two into the season you're not going to see much damage from flea, flea beetles any longer. So there's things like that you can do that will help you kind of understand the life cycle and therefore be able to control them without having to resort to sprays. Well, speaking of a different kind of pest, Michelle and Putney has a question for you, Charlie. Hi, Michelle. Hi, how are you? I'm great. What's your question for Charlie Nardozzi concerning your I'm, garden? Yeah, this year more than ever, my vegetable garden is plagued by chipmunks. They just leveled four <laughs> rows of edamame. That's like my daughter's favorite thing to eat. I don't know what to do. Is there real natural pest control that can work besides, you know, the things I've heard of sprinkling chili flakes and garlic? I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm seasoning my seedlings here for them. And yes, there you away. go. Well, maybe Mary should handle this one since she's naming her chipmunks. Yeah. <laughs> no, chipmunks are tough. Uh, you know, last year was a big year for chipmunks. And this year I haven't seen as many of them, but it's also a very regional thing too, just in, in where you live. Um, and they love, of course, to be in logs and in rock walls. So if your garden is close to anything like that, you're going to have chipmunks because they, they love to hide in those places, dart out, do a little feeding in your garden and hide, go back. So that's something to kind of think about. If you have a wood pile or something near your garden, you might want to consider moving it um, out of there, opening up the space a little bit. Um, so that predators can have a better view of the chipmunks, you know, the hawks, for example, that might be flying around or owls at night that are flying around. Uh, that makes it tougher for the chipmunk to go to a place that they feel protected enough that they can actually go out there and feed. Um, as far as controlling them, you can cover young seedlings and young plants with uh, either a floating row cover or a micro mesh screen um, or even some chicken wire, you know, small mesh like hardware cloth kind of wire that they can't get through. Um, that might be a nice thing to do because, in fact, most or many of the vegetables that we grow, um, they can be grown to maturity underneath these kinds of barriers. They don't need cross-pollination or anything like edamame that you mentioned. Um, you can grow that totally to maturity underneath a cover. So that might be one way to protect your plants. The other, of course, are sprays. There are a lot of home remedies out there. Go online, you see all kinds of wild things that people will be spraying. Um, I would go more with the commercial sprays. Uh, that are out there that are for rodents uh, and for wildlife. You know, the ones that have rotten eggs in them or the, the blood meal in them. Um, those kinds of sprays are have been tested at least to be effective and that might be a, another thing to do. So doing a combination of things might be the best uh, strategy to take care of the chipmunks. Okay, let's talk with uh, Lynn from Middletown Springs. Lynn has got a pest question for you, Charlie. I sure do. <laughs> we have strawberries planted in a tiered raised bed, and um, we also have slugs coming to visit. 
And I was wondering, if, is there anything we can do to prevent the slugs from coming back to visit every day? <laughs> well, slugs love the strawberries because it's a, a you know deep green leaves, nice shady, uh, cool, moist conditions. And who doesn't love strawberries, right? <laughs> so slugs have good taste too. Uh, there are some things you can do for sure. Uh, slugs, obviously, because they have really kind of squishy bodies, don't like sharp materials. So if you put like crushed gravel or crushed sand or crushed seashells would be ideal. Something that has a kind of a sharp edge around the strawberry bed, they'll be less likely to want to kind of cross across it to get to your strawberries. The other thing to do, of course, is to do a beer trap. You know, we've all heard about putting the beer traps in, putting the beer in there, and then they have, over the night they'll suck on the beer and uh, get drunk and fall down and, and die. <laughs> so that's another option. Uh, so there's some things like that that you could do um, that will really kind of help lessen the amount of slugs that you have out there. Charlie, about 30 seconds left, but I'll ask Lynn in Burlington's question to you. Uh, she says, help, my tomato plants have tiny holes in them. What can she do? Uh, it could be a lot of different foliar diseases. I would make sure you're mulching around the plants. Pick off the holy leaves, uh, ones with holes in them. Uh, your tomato should hopefully outgrow it. It may be early signs of some kind of disease. Charlie Nardozzi is a horticulturalist, author, and contributor to All Things Gardening on VPR, which you can send any questions that we couldn't answer today to us at vpr.org, and we can try to answer those in an upcoming All Things Gardening segment. Charlie, thank you so much. You're welcome, Mary. Great to be here.